0: afternoon, friends. Thank you. Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Job chapter 38. If you have a church Bible, that's page 283. You may be familiar with a poem entitled, The Blind Man and the Elephant, by John Godfrey Sachs. In this poem, six blind men happen upon an elephant. And because they're blind, they don't know that it's an elephant. So they reach out and they begin to touch the elephant and declare to one another what it is they're seeing. One of them, for example, touches the elephant's uh, leg and declares, this is a pillar that we are that we are touching. Another grabs the elephant's tail and says, no, my friends, it is a rope that we are touching. And yet another touches the stomach's side, his stomach, and says, no, this is a wall that we are feeling, and so on. The moral of this poem is to say that God is like the elephant. Each religion only knows some part of God, so every religion is partly right and partly wrong. That's a very appealing viewpoint to our culture, just as it was to me years ago. There are, however, two very significant problems with this idea proposed in this poem. The first is that the poem is told from the point of view of someone who knows full well that they are in fact touching an elephant. Okay, that in philosophical circles, that's considered cheating. If all the characters only know part of it, you're not allowed to know all of it, too. But there's a bigger problem, and that's the entire po- uh, poem ceases to make sense if the elephant speaks and says, Hey, I'm an elephant! The book of Job thus far has played out somewhat like Saxe's poem. At the beginning of the story, Job loses everything. His property and possessions are at once stolen or destroyed. All of his children suddenly die when the house collapses on them. And even Job's own health is struck down and he became so disfigured by this that his own friends did not recognize him when they saw him. Job became a man very familiar with suffering. But then each of Job's three friends reach out like the blind man, the blind men and touch Job's situation. And they declare to one another that they understand the ways of God. And here's what it's like. From their perspective, God gives good things to good people and bad things to bad people. And Job, because your life is such a big mess of suffering right now, you must have sinned very grievously indeed. Job, however, has maintained all along that he has not sinned. He is innocent, and God has unjustly destroyed him. Then along came another young man, Elihu, who also claim to understand the ways of God, and he says that Job is righteous before his suffering, but through his suffering he has begun a descent into pride and arrogance. Back and forth, these men have went over and over for the whole book so far, and in all of it the question has loomed. Which of these men has a correct view of God? Meanwhile, as they've been arguing, something else has begun looming as well. The skies around them have begun to slowly grow darker. Elihu starts talking about it in chapter 35. He starts talking about the clouds that are forming. Then the winds pick up, and by chapter 36, he's speaking of the rain pouring down from the skies. He begins to make references to the spreading clouds and the thunder and the lightning. And by chapter 37, Elihu is utterly terrified by this storm. He says, my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Job, listen to the thunder of God's voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Elihu is rightly believing that this storm is of divine origin. By this time, he must have been shouting to Job to be heard over the winds and the rain. In 37.4, in fact, he's screaming, God's voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. Finally, as the skies completely blacken over them in the midst of this hurricane, Elihu cries out, What shall we say to him? We cannot drop our case because of darkness. Now no one looks on the light. Therefore, men, fear him. And this is where we pick up the text today. Finally, at long last, through the whole book of Job, we've come to this point. In the midst of a hurricane, the elephant speaks... And God is not coming to comfort Job. There are many places in the Scriptures where God does comfort His suffering people. But not this time. Too much is at stake. Job needs to be humbled. So God is speaking to him out of a whirlwind. And he is coming with a singular demand. Job, answer me. And so let's pick up reading chapter 38, verse 1. We're just going to start looking at God's beginning of his speech here, 1 through 3. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. God finally speaks. But this is perhaps not the way that Job expected God to come. Is it what you would expect? Perhaps here we have a man who has who has suffered greatly. And because of the backstory in Job, we actually know exactly why this was happening. We know that this was an event that God himself orchestrated. Satan was wandering, wandering about the earth, and God says, Hey Satan, have you seen my man Job here? He's awesome. He is such a righteous man. He's really great, and I love him. And Satan challenges God. And God says, alright, go for it. See if you can break him. So what I would expect from God when he speaks out of the hurricane is that he would say, well, Job, let me explain kind of the backstory. Let me explain what happened. See, this is a wager with Satan kind of got out of hand. Sorry about all that. I mean, that's what I would expect. And, And we we might think that that he would say, Job, this is happening because you're my favorite. See, it's actually a good thing that this is all happening. And he, he might have even apologized. Job perhaps was expecting that very thing. But that is not what God says. Rather, he says, who is this that darkens counsel? Who is this that thinks he has some insight to offer me? Perhaps an angel who's coming before me. You know, one of, the, one of the glowing, radiant ones that I've created. No? Oh, perhaps it's a star in their vastness. Or an entire galaxy that is coming before the Almighty. But wait, no. What is this? A man. Even Job. So little insight does Job have to offer God that he says his words have a darkening effect. But it's more than darkening because God goes on to declare that Job's words are altogether without knowledge. So despite chapters and chapters of Job's complaints, God dismisses them all in one fell swoop. Job, God says, stop speaking as though you understand when you do not. Ouch, God. That's not very kind. I mean, Job is suffering here. He just lost everything. And on top of that, his three friends are being real jerks. And this young pipsqueak who comes there saying, I know what God's trying to say. What an insult. Have compassion, God. Yet, God does not hold back. Suffering, God says, does not give anyone carte blanche on truth. Let me be honest here. This is a really hard pill for me to swallow. Even as I was thinking about this text, I didn't like the point that I was finding here. If I even wake up in the morning having not slept well, I'm grumpy. And I want the whole world to work just like I think it should work, which usually means everyone everywhere doing exactly what I want with absolutely no deviation. And so I make demands of my wife and children. I make demands of my employers and the government and whoever else I can think of that I can possibly blame for why I'm grumpy. And all the while, I'm thinking, I'm totally justified. I think I'm right? And that's just if I stayed up too late. Okay, like a cup of coffee solves that problem. Okay, how much more of a problem is it? How much more do I believe that I have exclusive rights to truth when I'm sick in bed? Or when my entire body aches because of a a cold or exhaustion or overexertion? Or when I found myself with my wife in the hospital because we just had a miscarriage? In those times, it's very tempting to let the whole world know exactly what is true. What is true, I believe, is that the universe revolves around me, and I shouldn't have to hurt like this. What is true, I'll say, is that everything would be fine if other people would just do what they're supposed to do and leave me alone and stop judging me. What's true, I'll demand with a raised fist at the Lord, is that God should leave me alone because I'm having a bad day. Tomorrow's not looking much better and I think I'm totally justified in all of this because I'm in pain. I'm hurting. And no one else understands my pain. No one understands it. Only me. So what do you say to that, God? How will you answer me? (laughs) Young theologian. But to such a one as I, God will clearly say, even through a hurricane, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Now, I know full well that many of you in this room have suffered or are suffering far worse than I ever have. I don't doubt that one bit. But it's also likely that no one here has suffered as bad as Joe. And if Job's darkness could so provoke God, where do you and I stand? No friends, we can't hold our own against God. Even in our greatest suffering, we don't get to declare what is true. Only God gets to do that. Now that's not to say that we can't ask God questions. Far from it. But even Job's questions about his suffering eventually turned into accusations about his suffering. And he's God's favorite. How much more of a rebuke will you and I need? And God's rebuke continues for Job. It doesn't even stop right there. God goes on to tell Job to dress for action like a man. In other words, get ready to fight. Okay? We're going to have this out right here, right now. Those are not words you ever want God to say to you. Job, God says, you've been questioning me for long enough. Now it's my turn. I will question you. And then Job, you will answer me. Up to this point, friends, Job has been arguing with men. He held his own against his three friends. Point, counterpoint, and even against a lie whose wisdom Job might have been able to offer a response. But Job is no longer arguing with mere men. He's arguing with God. And do not miss this, friends. God's words are fundamentally different than men's words. Job's friends spoke with some authority. God speaks with absolute authority. Job's friends grope about as blind men, blind men with some understanding. God sees all perfectly and speaks with absolute understanding. God's, Job's friends speak out of their mouths. God speaks out of a hurricane. The words of men will always be fallible, constrained, disputable, and imperfect. God's words are always flawless, limitless in both knowledge and power. No one and no thing can ever stand against them, whether kings or authorities or entire cultures. And this, friends, is terribly important for us because we need to hear the rest of what God has to say. So let's look further at the rest of God's speech here. Let's consider the bulk of God's argument against Job. Throughout the next 68 verses, God will take Job on a whirlwind tour of creation, pun fully intended. If you take a look at your outline, you'll notice that I proposed a structure for God's speech here. You'll see that God harkens back all the way to the very first days, to the creation itself, in order to make Job feel very, very small, he succeeds. Now, I'm not going to focus too much on that outline, actually. I just want to provide a general framework for why I believe God says what he says when he says it. And in fact, I'm not even certain that it's exactly right. There are a few verses that don't neatly fit into that structure, but I think the the point is not whether the structure is flawless here. Regardless, simply considering the bulk of what God says will not fail to make his point very, very clear to us today. Now, one more thing to help us along as I read. I'm going to offer you some visuals on the screen above me. So you are free to read along with me in your Bibles if you'd like, or you can listen to the words of God, and we'll have some images up there to help you follow along and know exactly what it is Job is referring to. So let's hear the fearful word of the Lord this morning. Chapter 38, starting at verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, This far you shall come, and no farther, and here shall your your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that I might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? Is it changed like clay? Or it is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this... Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born them, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolts to bring rain on the land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the wastes and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heaven? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings, that they may go, and say to you, here we are, Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of heaven when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you give the time? Do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones grow, become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I've given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? Or or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave him to your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them warm, be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them, that the wild beasts may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and has given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give to the horse's might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locusts? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exalts in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains, and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it afar off. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a faultfinder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Let's consider together what God has just said. Regrettably, we don't have sufficient time to examine each verse, but we can make a couple important observations. First, consider where God lands at the end of this discourse. As we follow along through the days of creation and get to the end of day six, what we'd expect to find last, at the climax of creation, is man. But what do we find instead? A fault finder. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Instead of getting a place of honor in God's speech, God instead demands an answer from Job at just that point. This highlights that God did not need to create Job or any man. He chose to. This point is highlighted further in a number of verses, such as back in 38, verses 25 and 26, God says that he causes the rain to fall on land where no man is, and on the desert in which there is no man. Moreover, the wild donkey in 37, I'm sorry, 39, verse 7, is said to scorn the tumult of the city and that he hears not the shouts of the driver. That is, he doesn't give any regard to human civilization at all. And the ox, the wild ox is described several verses right after that, as paying no mind to man's words or will at all. God and everything he's created, it seems, are doing just fine without Job. God did not need to create Job. He chose to. And let's take this further. God did not need to create you or me. He chose to. He did not need to respond to Job's accusations, nor does he need to respond to ours. God does not need to explain to us why some suffer much and some suffer little. God does not need to tell us whether the suffering comes from our sin, the sin of others, the devil, or some other source altogether. Rather, what God makes abundantly clear to Job and to us so many years later is that even in the midst of great suffering, God is the creator and we are the creatures. One of us is completely dependent on the other and the other is completely dependent on nothing. So no matter how righteous you or I may feel in our suffering, the very fabric of creation itself testifies against us that we are absolutely nothing without God. God did not need to create Job. God did not need... Create you and I, but Job, you and I, are all desperately in need of God. Even in our suffering, we must never forget where we stand. And that leads us to our second key observation from God's speech. Every one of God's words are questioning Job as to whether he has sufficient knowledge to understand or sufficient power to act. Consider thirty-eight four. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. That's a knowledge question. Thirty-eight-eight. Who shut in the seas with doors and it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed? That's a power question. 38.17, have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep, deep darkness? That's a knowledge question. Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? That's a power question. What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? That's knowledge. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? That's power. Back and forth, back and forth, stanza after stanza, knowledge and power. Each rhetorical question that god asks job further reveals his minuscule knowledge and insufficient power from the creation of stars to the feeding of young birds god wants to know if job can offer any reasonable response god is saying you know what the earth is right job like you you've lived on it walked on it you've been here a while well did you did you make it no oh well how about the oceans like you've seen them you've swam in them right you made that didn't you No. Okay. Um, Let's see. Well, what about the light then? Surely you had some part in that, didn't you, Job? Well, no? Can can you at least tell me where the wind comes from? Or did you put the stars where they are? He's mocking. God is mocking. God, gets sarcasm, people. But what could Job answer? What could any of us answer? Even if we took the greatest minds in the world and equipped them with the skill of every Olympic athlete and the creativity of a thousand Michelangelos and offered them the most devastating array of military weaponry from every nation from the beginning of the earth until its end, their combined knowledge and power would not even register on the scales of the Lord. This is the God we are up against, friends. This is why God concludes with the entirely reasonable question, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer me. So here's where we stand. God doesn't need us or anything else. But we have neither the knowledge nor the power to argue with him. Our conclusion must therefore be and this is God's point in this entire discourse, is that even in our suffering, we must remember that God's knowledge and power are vastly superior to our own. And thus our application must come directly from that. Humble yourselves before God. Perhaps that sounds simplistic, even cliche, but it is undeniably what God wants us to learn from this. And it is entirely countercultural and counterintuitive for us, isn't it? You and I are saturated, utterly saturated with a worldview that says that you are the most important person that exists. If someone claims to be smarter than you, that's arrogant. They're they're not smarter, they just have a different viewpoint, a different opinion than you do. If someone is better than you at sports, or spelling, or parenting, or preaching then they're probably just really bad at other things. So you can still feel good about yourself. Because, you know, like, you just, you just maximize what you can do and you minimize what they can do. We're told again and again that we are special, right? And because we are special, we have the right to argue with anyone, including God, about anything, including suffering. But consider what God is saying to us special people this morning. The entire book of Job is about a man of whom God said, Hey, Satan, see this guy? He's special! He's my favorite. There's no one like him. And it was true. God was, uh, Job was truly special. God affirms that. He does. But when Job began to think that he therefore had a right to call God out, look what happened. God called him out instead, and I might add, at very great length. He did this to humble Job. Job was special, but he needed to be humble too. You and I really are special. It's true, but we need to be humble, too. So there are people who are smarter than you. No, they don't just have a different perspective. They are legitimately, objectively smarter than you. Okay, look, I went to Warren Wright's thesis defense. Okay? I understood about seven words on the first slide. And the only thing I understood on the second slide was the little number two in the corner that said, hey, this is the second slide. Okay? And there were like 80 slides. And some of you were there. I kept, you might have heard me, I kept laughing during the presentation. Do you know why? Because Warren kept saying, obviously. <laughs> okay, he's like, obviously neutrinos have such and such properties. Obviously the standard model says such and such. Obviously this. And... I was just sitting there going, like, what? You know, he wasn't saying those things to be cocky. He was saying them because it was obvious to everybody else in the room except for me. And those people were a whole lot smarter than me. And I can honestly and I think humbly say that because it's true. Okay? You know, I have some friends who can pick up new sports as though they've played them their entire lives. It's enormously frustrating. I'm just happy if I don't trip over myself too much. I don't deserve a medal for showing up at a sporting event with these friends. They deserve many medals, okay? I don't need a medal to make myself feel good about myself. I need to be humble and thank God that he gave my friends these abilities. And don't be fooled. Just because you don't think you're as good as someone else, and you say, well, I'm not prideful, Tom, I... I I think lots of people are smarter than me. In fact, everybody's smarter than me. I can't do anything right. That's actually pride, too. Because you're still basing your assumption on your own prideful understanding. A humble man does not think of himself as less than he ought. A humble man does not think about himself at all. So, what might humility look like for us here at Grace Fellowship Church? For some of you... Humility may mean serving in the church in some capacity, even if you think you can't. You may think you're too young or too old or too busy or whatever. Humility may mean for you asking how you can serve anyway. But for others of you, humility may mean serving the church less in some capacities, especially if you think you must serve in that way because no one else will do it or will do it as well as you or whatever Humility for you may mean stepping back for a season so that those I-can't-do-it-for-various-reasons people can humbly step up and try their hand at what you're doing. Now listen, brothers and sisters, many of you in this room are already very humble people, and many of you have suffered or are suffering. I know that. I weep for you and with you. But Job was a very humble man too. Remember, he was the one who said way, way long ago, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job suffered a very, very great deal. He lost everything. And yet, God needed to humble him still further. And he will faithfully, wisely, and powerfully humble us still further Let's finish our time by considering Job's response to God's questioning. Chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not twice. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Simply, Job covers his mouth. He says, God, you're right. I give up. I don't have any answers for you. I shouldn't have said those things, and I'm done. Now, God's not quite done with Job yet. We still have a little bit more to go here. That'll be next week's sermon. But for now, let's consider that Job got the point. He humbled himself, at least in part. Job recognized that even in his suffering, he must remember that God's knowledge and power are vastly superior to his own. Though Job and his friends were all reaching out as blind men, Job now recognizes that once the elephant speaks, no one else gets to speak any further. But note, Job is not saying that all of his questions have been adequately answered. Job still doesn't know why all this has happened to him. He doesn't understand how God's justice works, and he doesn't know God's plan. He just knows That God's knowledge and power are vastly superior to His own. Now that is applicable to us in that it is all too common for Christians to think that they have a handle on all matters of God. What I mean is that there is a great deal we can know about God because He has revealed it in the Bible. And there are many, many fantastic books based on the Bible that help explain God's ways to us. And there are There is much to be gleaned by studying and ascribing to the great confessions of the faith. But how inappropriate it is to read any of those things and swell with pride as a result. Should these things not greatly humble us instead? Does Does God predestine us or do we have free will? Take that one for example. How should we not consider these great paradoxes of God and fear? Because, listen, when 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 the Apostle Paul, who is a really, really, really smart guy, who knows his Bible inside and out and wrote a bunch of it, okay, smart guy, when he is wrestling with, are we predestined or is man of free will? And he's thinking about this back and forth, back and forth. When he gets to the point that we would expect to see a conclusion, like, here's therefore how it works... He says what Jeff read this morning in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. His ways are beyond tracing out and His paths are beyond discerning. Okay, like he writes a praise song. That's Paul's conclusion to that question. Let's sing. Okay, now if that's good enough for Paul, that's good enough for me. But what about this? Is Jesus Christ a man such that he can fully understand our weakness, or is he God, such that his sacrifice is sufficient to save us? Which is it? Tell me if you know. Is is God fully just, or is he fully merciful? Does the Lord dwell in heaven or in our hearts? Or is he with us when two or more are gathered? Or is he omnipresent, everywhere always? Tell me. Explain that one to me, would you? Please. I'd love to hear it. Are you so certain about the doctrines of baptism, spiritual gifts, or the end times that you can fully answer every opponent? Try me. Do you know with confidence how God is at work in the life and heart of the person sitting next to you? Are you sure? Can you explain how a foul, wicked man like John Newton can be fully justified, but also at the same time how a fully righteous man like Job can be relentlessly rebuked? because I would love to hear about that. I don't understand that one much at all. How will you answer these things? Do you think you have an answer? If so, you may be darkening God's counsel with words without knowledge. So let's take a page from Job's book here and simply cover our mouths. Now there is a time to speak up and defend the faith, but I think there are often, for us, way more times to simply praise God and say, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? So I have one final question left for us to consider. If this is how the most righteous man alive is addressed by God when he sins, how will you and I respond when God comes for us? The answer to that question fully depends on what you think of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God himself. He is God-made flesh, and the Bible says in Colossians 1.16 that by him all things are created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And that means that even though Job could not answer even one of God's questions, Jesus could answer everyone. Jesus has complete knowledge and absolute power over all creation because he was there. Okay? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And for reasons I will never, ever completely understand, the Bible says to those who receive Him, who believe in His name, He gives the right to become children of God. So if you're here today and have not surrendered your life to Jesus, then be warned. The storm is coming. And with it, God's fury at your sin. Someday, very soon, you will stand before God and he will say to you, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? You who have argued with me, answer me. And on that day, you will have no answer that can save you. But for any of you here who have believed in Jesus... If you have become a child of God, then you know, you can know, that God's anger at your sin has become completely dealt with through Jesus Christ when he died for you on the cross. God is angry with you no more. The clouds are gone. The six days of creation are now your joyful inheritance for all time. And so we can now uncover our mouths, and instead use them to declare his praise forever. Let's pray. What a heavy text this is today, Lord. What a hard lesson to learn. God, I confess it's so much more enjoyable for me to speak joyful words of your love and your peace and patience and kindness and goodness towards us, and I'd much rather overlook your fury and your wrath and the justice that you demand, even for the smallest of sins uttered by the most righteous of people. And yet, you had many words to say to us today, Lord. God, I pray that you would indeed humble us, even in our suffering. And Lord, there are people in this church suffering so greatly, we recognize that you are God and we are not. We throw ourselves at the foot of your cross and cry for mercy. Jesus, you do understand. You are familiar with grief. You know our sufferings and you are interceding for us before the Father. And so we know that because of your blood shed on the cross and your intercession, we can be called children of God and receive mercy upon mercy even though we are not fully made perfect yet. Thank you for that, God. Thank you that we have this hope and this joy. Would you now help us uncover our mouths and sing your praise? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.